بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيد المرسلين وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا إلى يوم الدين أما بعد إن الذين قالوا ربنا الله ثم استقاموا تتنزل عليهم الملائكة ألا تخافوا ولا تحزنوا وأبشروا بالجنة التي كنتم توعدون نحن أولياؤكم في الحياة الدنيا وفي الآخرة ولكم فيها ما تشتهي أنفسكم ولكم فيها ما تدعون نزلا من غفور الرحيم Dear friends, nice to be with you here today, this evening and this is a wonderful series that has been initiated here and uh, it's my honor to be here to deliver the first of these series on the great Imam A'zam Abu Hanifa and Nu'man Ibn Thabit Al-Kufi. The reason is that the majority of the Muslim world today, they, for whatever reason it is, they have some kind of affinity with one of these four Imams at some level of the, uh, or the other. We're talking about after 14, after about, you can say, 12 to 1300 years since these Imams, and they were not all contemporaries, and I'll explain that just to set the scene for you afterwards. But for over 10 centuries, 11, 12, up to 13 centuries, there have been people who have been influenced by these four. And there was no agreement that, okay, I'm going to choose that the Prophet ﷺ said, I'm going to choose these four people. I mean, these people never met the Prophet ﷺ. The earliest of the four is clearly Imam Abu Hanifa, uh, rahimahullah. He was born in 80 Hijri. So 80 Hijri is, you can say, the beginning, towards the beginning of the Abbasids. It's obviously 80 years after the migration of the Prophet ﷺ. And you've got some Sahaba left, you've got some companions left. And this is pretty much agreed upon that Imam Abu Hanifa met at least one companion, if not several. And the one he is known to have for certain met is Anas ibn Malik, uh, عنه, who was actually the personal assistant of the Prophet from about the age of 10 until the Prophet for about 10 years until the Prophet passed away most of his Medinan life. So he was very privy to the Prophet's home and, uh, uh, and his lifestyle and everything. And the Prophet had once made a very special dua for him, for which reason he actually stayed alive for a very long time. And he said he personally buried so many of his own children and grandchildren who died before him. He uh, Imam Abu Hanifa met him and it's possible he met a number of others has been related as well and there's also a possibility that he's also transmitted directly from the Sahaba though that's that that's not uh, proven beyond beyond question why why are we speaking about having met a Sahabi because as we may know there's a bit of a hierarchy in the early generations so the Prophet ﷺ said in a hadith, Khayrukum Qarni, the best of you is my generation, which basically speaks about everybody that saw the Prophet, ﷺ, so all the companions, the Sahaba. Then he says, So Khayrukum Qarni, Thumma Ladina Yalunahum, 
يَلُونَهُمْ Then those who will come after them, and then those who will follow them. So we're talking about three generations. And of course, this is a bit of a diminishing hierarchy. So the Sahaba, the companions that saw the Prophet they have some very specific uh, qualities and excellences about them. And then they're followed by those who studied by them or saw them while in a state of Iman. And then followed by the third level. So the Sahaba are called companions. Companions are called Sahaba. Then those who followed them, are, the next generation is called the Tabi'een or Tabi'oon, which means followers, successors. And then the third generation is called Atba'u Tabi'een or Tab'u Tabi'i in a singular, which basically means the followers of the followers, the successors of the successors. Essentially, for these three people, because the Prophet ﷺ mentioned that they are the Khayrukum. Khayr means the most excellent among you, the best among you, the most virtuous among you. That means they have been born witness with what they call khayriya or goodness or excellence, unlike us, right? As a, as a whole generation. Of course, there's people in every generation that will be that will have some kind of virtue and excellence depending on what they do, what they achieve, and what the state of their heart is. But these three generations were born witness about as a whole, which is quite amazing. So the higher the generation, the superior. So Imam Abu Hanifa was certainly a tabi among the four Imams. Imam Malik, who was born about um, um, maybe within a decade or so after him, he was not considered a tabi'i. But Imam Abu Hanifa was. Even though Imam Abu Hanifa was actually in Kufa, and Imam Malik rahimahullah was actually in Medina Munawwara. Because by that time, many of the Sahaba were probably in Medina Munawwara, maybe passed away, and the others who were probably alive were probably in different parts of the world. Imam Abu Hanifa then lived for a good age. He died eventually in 150 Hijri. So that means he, he was 70 years old when he passed away. That's very interesting is that 150 Hijri is the same year in which Imam Shafi'i is born. So the only person who was actually a contemporary of Imam Abu Hanifa was Imam Malik, who was born a decade or so after him and obviously died a bit after him. That's why Imam Shafi'i, who was born in 150, gets to study at a very young age, about 9-10 years old, he gets to study uh, with Imam Malik in his old days, in his old age. And then comes Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal who comes later. Imam, Ahmed, uh, Imam, Shafi'i, was, uh, Imam Shafi'i was born in 150, he died in 203 or 4. Right, Hijri. He was only about 50-something years old when he passed away. Imam Shafi, oh, Imam, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal overlaps with him. Imam Ahmad studied with Imam Shafi'i. And Imam Ahmad dies in 240 or 240-something, I think. So you can see there's a bit of a succession here. Now, why these four Imams? Why do we, why do we follow them? Why do most people have some kind of relationship to them? The fiqh that basically is considered to be the fiqh of the orthodox Muslim ummah, right, relates to these four. Why? There were actually a number of other so-called imams who did what these four did as well. What did these four do? What they're primarily known today for. We're not going to focus, I just want to lay the foundation because this is the first lecture. What these four did essentially was that they codified the, the sharia, the, the, the fiqh, the, the jurisprudence. Essentially you had the Qur'an and you had sunnah. 
meaning you had the Quranic verses, you had the Sunnah, the Hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam, but they had to be distilled, they had to be extrapolated from, they had to be processed to derive the rulings from these so people could use them. Because not everything is so clear cut in the Quran and Sunnah. There are many things that I'm not mentioning the Quran and Sunnah that you know, we would need answers for. So what these Imams were trying to do is they were trying to analyze these traditions and trying to formulate rulings for us. Clearly, um, sometimes they differed. Clearly, sometimes they differed because sometimes one is going to say you do it this way and another Imam saying do it another way. Clearly, they differed about that. And while they were all correct in their endeavor, because the Prophet ﷺ has said very clearly that when the judge or the jurist, the one who has the qualifications to undertake this kind of a analysis and then scholarly endeavor, when they undertake that scholarly endeavor to find the truth and they come up with a ruling, they formulate a ruling, if it is correct according to what is the reality according to Allah, then they actually end up getting two rewards. If they get it wrong, they won't know. Think, they will think they're correct, that they formulated a ruling based on their analysis and their, 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 their studies and their research. If that doesn't match up with what's the haq and the truth according to Allah, they still get one reward. And the reason they get one reward is because their responsibility was to find a ruling. There's no website you can go and look at, you know, there's no website, there's no trivia question or something where say, okay, that was actually right, you know, and next week we're going to publish what's right and what's wrong according to Allah, right? You're only going to find that out in the hereafter in terms of how much reward they get, right? So that's, the, that's just to give you a bit of a, a scholarly kind of understanding of how these, the dynamics behind it. But there were not just these four, remember I said these four were not always contemporaries. At the same time, there were others in different parts of the world doing the same thing. So you had Ibn Hazm al-Zahiri, right, who had a more literalist approach. You had Imam Awza'i, who, who was the great, they, they had no probably greater person in Sham, in Syria. He was the Imam of Syria, just like Imam Abu Hanifa was in Kufa. Imam Ahmad was in Basra. Imam Shafi'i probably started off in, originally from Gaza, went to Mecca, and he ended up in Egypt. He's buried there right now in Cairo, right? Imam Malik was in Medina Munawwara. What about the other great cities? So you had, in Egypt, you actually had Layth ibn Sa'ad, right? Another great Imam there. And in Sham, you had a, a person called Imam al-Awza'i. Then you had Imam Abu Ja'far al-Tabari, right? The great Mufassir and historian. He also had a madhab in his time. But you know what happened over the centuries? Is that these madhabs, some of them did not survive. How does a madhab survive? What's a madhab? A school of law. That particular, the, 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 these scholars that I've mentioned, the four Imams and all these others, they obviously came up and extrapolated a body of Masail, a body of uh, rulings, right? Now, for anything that I say, I have to either write a book or I have to teach several people. Otherwise, I'm going to, all, whatever I've said, whatever knowledge I had is going to die with me, right? That's quite a natural thing, isn't it? So you're going to have to produce some papers, you're going to have to write a book, you're going to have to give seminars and you're going to have to be influential enough that people actually pick up from you and then proliferate your thoughts. So essentially for these other Imams, that didn't happen. Meaning for these other great scholars, it didn't happen. Their madhab, their school of law, their codifications, their body of laws that they had formulated did not carry on. Whereas for Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam Malik, Imam Shafi, Imam Ahmad, at varying different de degrees, their, their madhabs endured until today. That's why if we look at the Muslim Ummah, 
proportionally speaking today, uh, you could say that the overwhelming majority, uh, are, if they're followers of Madhab, as the majority generally are, right, they're, they're followers of the Hanafi school, followed by the Maliki school is actually probably has more followers than the Shafi'i school, because a lot of North Africa is Maliki, right, and that's a huge population there. Followed by the Shafi'i school is probably third, though the Shafi'i school in the West seems to be probably a bit more popular than the, the, the Maliki school, well actually probably about the same. Um, so you have the Hanafis who probably have the greatest amount of following, followed by Malikis, followed by Shafi'is, followed by Hanbalis, right, who have probably the smallest uh, amount of uh, uh, followers in that sense. And there's uh, um, even those who are generally tend to be followers, there's very, very few who are, you can say, ardent followers of the Hanbali school. A lot of them tend to uh, shift away in quite a few masail um, where you know, they think that they've got a stronger opinion elsewhere. So it's not a very strong school in that sense, though it was obviously in the past. Now let's talk about Imam Abu Hanifa. I just want to set the scene. So Imam Abu Hanifa starts this off. What makes him so popular? We've got one statement by Imam Shafi himself. He says, Anasu iyalun ala Abi Hanifa, right? Basically, it filfik. In jurisprudence, everybody is dependent on Imam Abu Hanifa. Now, that's quite a, an amazing statement that he makes, despite the fact that he doesn't take Imam Abu Hanifa's views in in everything, right? He clearly has respect for him, clearly praises him for this, but he has his own school, right? He studies with Imam Malik. His school is very different to Imam Malik's as well. So he's clearly got his own mind. He's a very independent thinker. There's no doubt about it. But what then makes him say that people are dependent on Imam Abu Hanifa in their fiqh? So one of the ways to understand that is that Imam Abu Hanifa is probably responsible for the first codification work. You could probably say that he was probably the first person to fill this gap. As Islam spread, I mean 70 Hijri, 80 Hijri, when he starts doing his work, it's probably about 90 Hijri. It's very interesting where he came from and what's his life story. That's when he started doing his work, formulating the fiqh and jurisprudence. He was the first to try to codify it, to try to bring it together. Now, when something has been unprecedented, then there's only the very bold and confident and highly resolute people will probably try to go and fill that gap. Most of us are followers. Most of us just do what others do because we copy, because that's the safest way to do things. There's very few people who are actually willing to go out on a limb and do something different. Now, among those people, you've got those who go out and do something radical and different, who mess it all up. And then you've got those people who get it right. That's the tawfiq of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? That's the tawfiq, that's a divine enablement from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Imam Abu Hanifa blazes this path. So he's a pioneer, I would say, in extrapolating all of these extra issues, right? including a lot of hypothetical issues. He literally had, you could say, a factory of fiqh, where he had a pro- and the, 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 this is what's different from his madhab to other madhabs, that he had approximately 30 people of um, various different proficiencies, whether that be in Arabic language, in hadith, in analogy, um, uh, in analysis, and in Quran tafsir, and so on. And he had all of them together, and a lot of the masa'il, a lot of the rulings that the f- have been formulated through him, 
they come through the committee. It's, it's, sometimes they've debated on issues for three months. And eventually it's like, okay, fine, if we can't come to an agreement, we're going to record that this is his opinion and this is so uh, Imam Abu Yusuf's opinion, one of his students. This is Imam Muhammad's opinion. This is Zufar's opinion. This is Hassan ibn Ziyad's opinion. So you've got that in, in those uh, bodies of work that have been produced. You've got that in there. So let's go back to Imam Abu Hanifa about what make, gives him this ability now that we've understood where, what he's been able to achieve and this pioneering work. I personally believe that he's one of those people and you get a few of those in the world at any given time. He's just one of those people who was a natural genius, extremely intellectual. Right? In fact, people, there's one person who observed him sitting up and standing uh, uh, sorry, sitting down and then standing up and he, sa- and he says that this person is so intellectual you can even see it in the way he sits and the way he stands now some of us may just consider that to be an exaggeration but I completely understand what he's speaking about you may see somebody the way they get in a car right, overcoming an obstacle you know, there's a certain way they do things. You can tell that they've got a lot of experience in the way they do it to maybe avoid a particular accident, avoid a particular, very efficiently. That's just a statement about him. Now, Imam Abu Hanifa, what I love about him, right, and why he is a great role model personally for me, and I sometimes probably get very animated even speaking about him, though I haven't spoken to him about him for a very long time, is that he starts off as a businessman. A very wealthy businessman. Once, he, and he, he liked his fine clothes. He would pass by and you could tell he'd pass by because uh, you could tell his perfume. Right? He used very expensive things. And he liked it that people had, and he spent a lot behind other people. So for example, there was one occasion when he borrowed somebody's garment. can't remember exactly which garment it was. And then, it, for that person, it was a very expensive garment. Right? And then he gave it back to him, and he said, no, this isn't good enough. And a week later, he was seen with a garment about ten times, that same kind of article of clothing, that was about ten times that amount. On one occasion, there was somebody who came to one of his gatherings, and he had shabby clothing on. So, as people were leaving at the end of the gathering, he told him to sit, stay behind, right? so he could speak to him privately. And after everybody left, he says, okay, can you, can you uh, on, on the side there was his uh, prayer mat. He said, pick that prayer mat up. Underneath it was money. He says, please take this and spend it on yourself. So the person, no, he didn't even say that. He says, you can take that money. The person immediately understood that he was trying to gift him the money. He said, I've got, I'm well to do, I've got money. So he said, why are you dressed in a way that makes people feel sorry for you and want to spend on you? Right. He was a major businessman and it looks like he had quite a widespread business in clothing, garments, cloth, cloth sale. So he would deal in a lot of cloth, right? So anyway, whatever cloth he was dealing with, in those days everybody had to deal, you know, you didn't get ready-made clothes uh, uh, from Next in those days. So cloth was a big business, I guess. So, however you could tell that from before, uh, on one occasion, it says that he was, uh, th- th- there's a great, another tabi'i, 
whose name was Imam Abu Amir al-Sha'bi. Abu Amir al-Sha'bi once uh, saw him and um, he said to him, where do you go? Like, where are you going? He, he must have seen him passing by. He says, where are you going? He says, I'm going to such and such a business, such and such a wholesaler, trader, whatever. He says, no, that's not what I mean. I said, who do you study by? He said, I don't study with anybody. Now remember, he's, he's older. He's 20-something years old probably. Right? He's, he's not as other people start at the age of 10. Or Imam Shafi, he had memorized the whole Quran and he had memorized the Muatta, which is the Hadith collection of Imam Malik, right? by the age of 10 or 12. So when he went to Imam Malik as a young boy, and Imam Malik had already retired, right? And he said, can I study with you? So he looked at him and he thought, okay, this person seems very promising. So against his normal schedule, he said, okay, I'll teach you, but go and call one of my students who know the Muatta. He says, I've memorized it, right? So he started very young. He died very young. Imam Abu Hanifa started later. Obviously, he was a lot more mature when he started. So once uh, when he said that to him, where are you going? And Imam Abu Hanifa said, you know, I'm going to such and such a, uh, a businessman. Uh, this was when he was passing this Imam Sha'bi's house. So he mis mistook him from one of his students and says, where are you going, young man? Imam Abu Hanifa says, you know, I'm going to see that, murder, that businessman. No, he said, whose classes do you attend? He says, I don't, nobody, sir. I don't, I don't attend anybody's classes. So uh, uh, Sha'bi said, I see signs of intelligence in you. You should go and sit with the learned men. Right? You should sit with learned men. Now I'm going to say that here. Anybody who thinks he's really good at science or whatever else you're studying, then I think you should go and study the deen. Right? I'm going to say that to you. I don't know you guys too well. I know a few of you and I know one of you is supposed to be in class right now. All right? Um, but uh, I really think that if you're, if you're what Imperial College uh, makes you out to be, right, and you think you, can, you want to change the world, then go ahead and study well in what you're doing here, but supplement that with uh, uh, that knowledge with uh, your studying the deen. Inshallah, you know, with what intellect Allah has given you, um, maybe you could be the next Imam Abu Hanifa, right? Why should you think any less than that, right? At least if you if you think that, you you may get somewhere with it. And mashallah, you do have a few students here who are already doing that, and from other universities who are already doing that. So you should definitely think about it. Right? I'm trying to be the Imam Sha'bi looking for the next Imam Abu Hanifa. Right? And, I, and I'm not joking about this. Seriously, I'm not joking about this. We need a lot more of this. We need a lot more of this. The Ummah is calling. Right? Let's not just revel in what these people did. They've gone. They've, they've secured a place for themselves. Right? We need to, inshallah, help a lot of people. Today we're sitting talking about him in Imperial College. He, wouldn't, he would never have even fathomed that idea that somebody's going to speak to me about this in a city... Uh, which probably at that time I don't know if it was called Londinium or what it was called at that time, right? And uh, there's going to be a college there, and there's going to be you know somebody speaking about. I, he would never have guessed that. He would never have guessed that. But this is uh, th th this is this is the the wonder of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala's Deen. So anyway, he says, "You ought to sit in the company of learned men." This sparked a new light in the heart of Abu Hanifa for studying. He it seems like he first started studying theology beliefs and he as i said he was a natural genius he became a master i mean he first does a very excellent business his business carries on he doesn't drop his business by the way he just gets others to manage it so you can tell he's a big, good manager as well in that sense he then dedicates initially i think he probably just dabbles in it studying theology now he was in kufa right kufa is in iraq today right it's not as well known but it's it's there 
the, the, the other city close by was Basra. Like uh, you can say the other city that both cities had been established during the time of Umar radiallahu an. Basra had problems. Basra was where a lot of heretics, new ideas, radical ideas, crazy ideas were. So there were a lot of heterodox ideas there and people who held them. Imam Abu Hanifa says that he went over 20 times, about 27 times to Basra to argue, debate with these people. And in most cases, he managed to silence them, convince them, convert them. And, uh, you know, uh, that he was very successful in that. That makes a lot of sense. On one occasion, he had a style, he had a knack for speaking. When he spoke, he spoke very clearly, very convincingly. He was able to be very convincing. That's just the natural trait that he had. In fact, when he went to Medina Munawwara, for, uh, you know, during his pilgrimage, he went to Medina Munawwara, he actually met Imam Malik. They had a meeting. When he left, Imam Malik was asked, what do you think of him? Because his fame had spread everywhere. Everybody knew Abu Hanifa, like, you know, even before he became a great jurist. So clearly, he's just come to meet Imam Malik. So it's like, what do you think of him? Right, what kind of a... He says, رَأَيْتُ رَجُلًا لَوْ كَلَّمَ You don't have any here. But لَوْ كَلَّمَ هَذِهِ السَّارِيَةِ ذَهَبًا لَقَامَ بِحُجَّتِهِ He says, I've just seen a man who, if he was to claim that this pillar was made of gold, he could probably establish proof for it. Like he could convince you about it. Very convincing, very intellectual. So, as I said, over 20 times did he go to debate. However, on one occasion, he mentions that, I mean, they became so proficient in it that they became the authorities. People would literally uh, point fingers at them that th- th- he, he's the man to go to in terms of jurisprudence, though he's not formally a student, it seems. On one occasion, there's a group of people. These people were known to be leaning towards atheism, right? Uh, they came to ask him some questions about God. So they asked, they, they came and said, we've got some questions. He probably knew about them from before. So this is the way he played it, right? Because the end of the day, you have to remember that to convince somebody, there's a, there's a knack in the way you do so, right? You can use strategies to convince people. So what he said was, hold on, hold on. I, I can't speak to you right now. Uh, I've got a really important issue that I'm pondering over and it's occupying my mind, right? And it's really strange. So I need to deal with that question first. So they got curious and they said, what is the question? He said, yeah, I've just been told that, I've just been told that there's a ship, right? A freight liner that's carrying a lot of freight and it leaves port by itself. It traverses the waters, navigates itself and it reaches its destination on its own. Essentially what he's talking about is a smart chip, right, programmed, which today for us is very easy to understand. It's not even a matter of disbelief. You could probably control planes right now with, uh, you know, with remote controls. They just probably need the guy for, because it's autopilot, isn't it? They just need the guy there to make sure, just like in a Tesla, you need the guy to sit there, even though it drives on its own. I mean, I've actually sat in a Tesla with that happening. It's quite interesting. Uh, But you just need a guy because they just can't trust the 100%. But in those days, for something like that, that was unfathomable. That was impossible for people to even think of in those days. So as he's explaining this story, those guys incredulously look towards him and say, are you crazy or what's going on? I mean, how can you even believe in something like that? How can you believe that a ship travels on its own, right, without a navigator, without somebody controlling it? 
And that's what exactly the response, or that's exactly the kind of response Imam Abu Hanifa was waiting for. He said, this is exactly the point. He said, you guys have a problem with this world running without a creator, without a maker, without a designer, without an administrator. You guys find it not credible to believe that a ship can run by itself. How do you expect this entire universe to run by that? They were just dumbstruck, taken aback, and that, that helped them to understand the issue and basically they, they repented from the they repented from this th- these uh, uh, you, you could say um, these beliefs that they had uh, they, these doubts that they had come about with. now that was a much more effective way than to sit them down and trying to give them proofs because they probably heard them all you can tell that he was just very good at, at arguing the case as I mentioned he's very wealthy he has a student so on one occasion somebody came to ask him a question a woman came to ask him a question remember what happens in the world is you become good at one thing and you become very proficient for example um, there are several speakers out there who are very good at uh, for example um, very good at uh, in, intra, in interfaith dialogue right they, they, they know a lot about the Vedas and they know about the, the, the Christian Bible and, and they know how to debate that and they've managed to convince a lot of people they've got no backing in jurisprudence though for example right they've got no backing in they've got no uh, background in fiqh in jurisprudence or anything i mean their main focus like ahmed didat uh, rahimahullah was wonderful in terms of his bible studies very good at convincing uh, christians but he he didn't have any kind of traditional uh, hadith tafsir education at all right now, what happens with a lot of these people, because they're very prominent, you know, you've got the likes of Zakir Naik, you've got a few other people like that, right? People come to ask them questions because they see him as a man of the deen, man of religion, that he's very good at one subject. And then the, the challenge there for such people is that, do they say, no, that's not my area, as mashallah, some do that, right? Or do they just start giving answers? Most of the time, unfortunately, not very equipped answers. You can tell his intelligence that a woman came to ask him a question about the sunnah way to divorce. Maybe she, that was a discussion with her husband. That what's the sunnah way of divorce? And he's like, I don't know. He says, go and ask Hamad ibn Abi Sulaiman. That was one question. I think on another, there may have been another question. She came back and she gave him the answer after she'd received it from Hamad ibn Abi Sulaiman, who was the great jurist holding the main classes in those days. When he came to find out about it, he says, you know what, I'm done with theology, right? I need to know these hands-on jurisprudence, everyday, everyday problems, right? So he took his shoes and he went and joined Hamad's lesson. Now, as I said, he's an intellectual, memorizes everything. He says, I used to memorize everything that Hamad used to say, right? To such a degree that the next day when he, we would be tested, I would, I would be able to repeat everything correctly while others would make mistakes. Eventually, Hamad says that, the prominent position in the class in front, only you're going to have. And then when Hamad Abu, ibn Abi Sulaiman, when he passed away, everybody elected Imam Abu Hanifa to take his position, and then he becomes the great scholar. Sorry, he then becomes the great Imam as such. That's why out of the four Imams, in fact out of all the Imams and all the scholars out there, the only one who's been given this title, Al-Imam Al-A'zam. Al-Imam Al-A'zam is Imam Abu Hanifa. What does Al-Imam Al-A'zam mean? Al-Imam means obviously the leader, Al-A'zam means the greatest, the mightiest, 
right? The most proficient leader. To such a degree that if you go to Baghdad today, right? If you go to Baghdad uh, in Iraq today, there's an entire area where uh, majority of the Sunnis are. It's actually called A'zamiyyah. From A'zam, A'zamiyyah. That's where his complex is. That's where he's buried. And that whole area is called A'zamiyyah. So, as I said, he's left a massive, he's left a massive legacy and um, highly intellectual, using his intellect. There's a lot of intellectual people in the world. In history, we've had a lot of intellectual people. Unfortunately, they just didn't lay, leave a mark the way he did, right? Because they just did what everybody else was doing. He did something different, right? And he got it right. He didn't get it wrong in doing different, right? You either get it wrong and become notorious, or you actually do something right, and you become famous, well-known, and you become prayed for, as he is. So, uh, a, few, a few more things, when his students would come to class, uh, he, uh, he once had a student who was quite young at the time, Abu Yusuf his name was, right, Abu Yusuf. And after a few days of coming to class and showing a lot of promise, suddenly he disappears. Imam Abu Hanifa goes to look for him and finds out that his father's not very wealthy, right, and he's pulled him out so that he can work for him, he can go and work and earn a living for the rest, uh, for the family. Imam Abu Hanifa, I mean, you see, there's very few people who will have even a material ability to do this, right? He says to his father, I'll pay you whatever, he, whatever money he can make. You let him come to the class. This is what you call investment, right? Behind people who you can see. And that's why later the same Imam Abu Yusuf becomes the first person in the Abbasid, great Abbasid empire under Harun al-Rashid the great Abbasid Caliph, which most people would have probably heard about, he becomes what, given the title, the Chief Justice, Qadi al-Qudat, the judge of all judges. And he's very influential in the Abbasid court. He writes a book for Harun al-Rashid. And this would not have happened. He would have just basically receded into oblivion had he continued his work, his normal work. But Imam Abu Hanifa... Then you have another one who comes to study at an older age when Imam Abu Hanifa is put into prison in Baghdad at his old age. He became a threat because uh, Abu Ja'far al-Mansur, who's before Harun Rashid, probably the greatest of the Abbasid Khalifs, before Harun al-Rashid, the second Khalif, he felt a threat from Imam Abu Hanifa, which is probably misplaced. So he imprisoned him. He could still teach and everything, but he imprisoned him. And eventually they say that he was actually poisoned. And that's why, that's why he died. Allah knows best about that. But there's a young man who's just become mature, 13, 14 years of age, maybe even less, who starts to study with Imam Abu Hanifa. And he becomes, in some sense, probably even greater than Imam Abu Yusuf, though Imam Abu Yusuf is his sheikh as well. This is Imam Muhammad ibn al-Hasan al-Shaybani, who then goes on to write at least six books in which he compiles all of the rulings of Imam Abu Hanifa. As I said, madhabs proliferate through followers who will take your work and spread it. Imam Abu Muhammad is considered to be majorly responsible. He found the value in it. And what's very interesting is this same Imam Abu Muhammad, after he studied with Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam Abu Hanifa passed away, he went to Medina Munawwara and studied with Imam Malik. Imam Malik is his teacher as well. He comes back, he doesn't adopt the opinion of Imam Malik, even though Imam Malik was more prominently known as a, a hadith scholar. He continues with the Hanafi tradition. He, uh, he is actually also a teacher of Imam Shafi'i. 
right? Wallahu alam, because Imam Shafi uh, uh, also met him. Now, the other thing that Imam Abu Hanifa would do, that was very different from a lot of other scholars in those days. See, today, scholars are employed. The way they make their money is they're employed either by masjids as imams, or by schools or madrasas, and they get a salary. In those days, there was, no sal- there was not much of a salary system. The way it worked was generally that there would be a, there were, mashallah, there were very, uh, there, there were a lot of charitable people. They would establish endowments, right? They would establish endowments like uh, this is an endowment for uh, the scholars of this school who are teaching here, or this is an endowment for the teachers of that school, or for the scholars of this city, or for the scholars of this area. These were endowments. Unfortunately, we just don't have enough of these today. That's why we've actually had to, uh, the imams and the scholars have actually had to start being employed as such. So they would receive money through these endowments, or they would receive money directly as gifts from wealthy people, which would then enable them to give lectures in the masjid for free and go and teach in their homes or in other places for free. There was no stipend as such. I don't think students paid in those days. I don't think there was a fee system. Wallahu alam. I haven't looked at this in detail, but that would have been a wonderful time. You could just go and study for free. You don't have to pay 9,000, 6,000, 4,000, 3,000, or whatever it was. All right? Um, Imam, uh, the only problem with that is sometimes uh, you could be muzzled. Because of where your money is coming from, it's possible you have to be careful how you responded to certain questions related to that person or whatever the case was. Imam Abu Hanifa, the thing about him is a lot of self-dignity and Allah had given him this business due to which he did not have to go to anybody. On one occasion, Abu Ja'far al-Mansur had an argument with his wife. They called in Imam Abu Hanifa as an arbitrator. Right? Uh, the, 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 the argument was something about taking more than one wife or something. All right? Typical argument. Um, Imam Abu Hanifa, uh, sorry, Abu Ja'far al-Mansur puts out his claim. He says, Ya Imam, tell me, isn't it right that a man can have up to four wives? Right. So Imam Abu Hanifa says, yes. Uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, so it's right, yes. And uh, then his wife uh, must have said something. So Imam Abu Hanifa then said, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala only allows you up to four wives if you can do justice. And if you cannot do justice, then you're only allowed one. Right? Now, that obviously silenced the whole issue because that maybe that information he'd given originally was going to be abused but immediately he understood the situation he could have only done that because of independence you're speaking in front of the khalif of the muslim world i mean not just of kufa or basra or baghdad right you're talking about the khalif of the world who could just literally snap a finger and have you killed but he was able to do that later he goes home and somebody comes with a huge amount of uh, coins, gold or silver coins, that the queen has just sent you this. He says, please take it back. I did not do it to please the queen. I did it because I wanted the truth to prevail. So take all of this money back. He had the independence to do that. That's why one of the sun I consider this to be a sunnah of Imam Abu Hanifa, that another thing that he used to do, was that he used to dedicate a percentage of his wealth, of his income, a percentage of income for the scholars of the city. And that would be given to his students and the scholars of the city. 
I find that so amazing. The reason is that our deen, our religion, can only survive. We as human beings can survive with good jobs. Right? With, with, uh, you know, with a degree from Imperial, you'll survive inshallah. Right? You'll more than survive inshallah. Allah give you barakah. But will our deen survive? Will it survive in the next generation? Will it survive for the other people? That can only survive through scholars. Right? That can only survive through scholars. If I'm going to help other scholars, especially those who are doing very good work, I'm going to help them with a bit of money here and there, then I'm encouraging them. I'm helping them, I'm assisting them. That means they can spend more time behind teaching and researching rather than going finding a, a taxi job or something else. Not that, alhamdulillah, I don't think most do that anymore. Alhamdulillah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has enriched and, and uh, has dignified the ulama, especially of this country, but I've seen this in other countries. All right? Some may still have to do uh, a few side jobs, right? that they're not really... I, I, I know some people who... I know one person, for example, he's in another country, a Western country, and uh, he gave up a big job in Cisco. He was making a lot of money to go and study. He studied for five or six, seven years. He became an alim. And now he's, mashallah, running, uh, 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 and, uh, he, he is basically running a teaching uh, school uh, online as well. And uh, he's getting by on a minimum because there's only so much money it can make, right? And his family is pressuring him to go back. His, his, his family are in high positions in these major tech companies. They can get him a job for over $100,000 tomorrow. But he's just resisting that, what have I spent five, six years do, to do? I want to do that. I want to do that. You see what I'm saying? So there are still people like that. And Imam, this is what I call the sunnah of Imam Abu Hanifa, that he would look after others. You can tell that, you see, when it comes to scholars, sometimes there's, a concept, there's an idea of jealousy, that they may have more followers, others may get more followers. Why should I help somebody else? To be honest, if I help another scholar, he's doing the same work that I'm doing. He is trying to benefit the community. He's, if, he, if, if I can facilitate for that person to benefit the community, it's going to make my job easier. We both, have, we both have the same goal. right? We both have the same goal. So that's the way he looked at it. In fact, he would give crazy gifts to people. Once another muhaddith, Sufyan ibn Uyayna, came to one of his students and said, what's wrong with the imam? He gives so much gifts to us. He sends so much gifts to us. You know, you know what I mean? Is You know when you go to somebody's house, you take a box of chocolate. Or you take some flowers. Or if you're really tradition, you take some mitai. Alright? You know what I mean? But if you go there with five bags of different shopping, you as a recipient of that, wouldn't you feel a bit awkward? Right? It's, a bit, it's gracious to accept a box of chocolate, maybe three boxes of chocolates, maybe a bit more, maybe you know, a nice scarf. Maybe you want. But imagine they do like loads of shopping for you as though it's your shopping. And you receive that. Wouldn't you feel a bit uncomfortable and embarrassed? So Sufyan ibn Uyayna felt like that. And he came to one of the, he met one of the students or some of the students and he said, what's wrong with your imam? This is the kind of gifts he gives. He says, he hasn't given you anything. I mean, you should see what he gives us. All right. That, and the amazing thing is that his business was proliferating. And the other benefit of it is that he was very scrupulous. He was extremely scrupulous. Uh, he, he ran his business with absolutely no deception. He tried to make sure that it was completely legit. On one occasion, he, they had received uh, these uh, rolls of, uh, uh, of, of uh, fabric. Problem was that some of them had a slight defect. right? Some of them had a slight defect. Now in fabric, you can't, unless you roll it all out, you can't see it. 
but he knew and he was told that there was some defect. He sent it to one of his, uh, one of his, uh, um, one of his agents, and he told him that make sure when you sell this that you inform the potential customer about this. The person must have forgotten because he was getting a good rate, whatever, and he sold them off. It was a lot of fabric, and Imam Abu Hanifa found out about it, and he said he, he was upset. He says, "Why didn't you tell him? I told you." He says, "I forgot." He donated that entire the entire proceeds of that he donated, right? That's the, you can tell that when you do things like that, you basically save your wealth from a haram element, which pollutes the rest. It's like a cancer essentially. People think that I can make more money by doing a few uh, easy deals here. Easy generally means problematic, right? But the barakah is not there. The barakah is not there. The barakah is not there, right? That's just the way things are. When you make easy money, easy come, easy go. Why is why is there criticism about him, right? One of the major charges against him is that uh, he opposes hadith and gives preference to opinion over hadith. All right. Now that's a very important thing. Now I've got my own theory about this. There's been a lot of responses to this and people have proven uh, how many hadith he narrated and so on. But there's a few things I'd just like to mention very quickly. Number one, the Hanafis and jurists in general, their, their focus and interest is not in the preservation of hadith. What that means is their focus is not just to find a narration and preserve it and not do anything with it and just transmit it to the next generation. Right? Their focus is to take that narration, extrapolate and distill rulings from it for the sake of the people. So, there was a big hadith scholar during his time. Imam Abu Hanif had actually studied with him, meaning had heard hadith from him. His name was Abdurrahman al-A'mash. Once A'mash had a question, a juris, a juridical question. right? So he asked Imam Abu Hanifa, what is the answer to this? So he said, this is the answer. He says, where'd you get the answer from? So he says to him, you reported, he's, he's addressing Amash. He says, you reported to us from Abu Saleh, who reported from Abu Huraira. You also reported to us from Abu Wa'il, who reported from Abdullah. And you also, re- so he's talking about three narrations that you've reported to us, right? From Abu Ilyas, who reported from Abu Mas'ud al-Ansari radiallahu So he's mentioning three people in between, who relate from three Sahaba, all right? that the Messenger of Allah said such and such. You also reported the same to us from Abu Mijlas, who reported from Hudayfa, who from Abu Zubair, who from Jabir and Yazid al-Raqashi, and they from Anas ibn Malik. Now Amish explains, enough, enough. What took me a hundred days to narrate to you, you have repeated to me in just an instance. I was not aware that your practice was based on these hadith. Like, he didn't know that you could extrapolate these same rulings from the very narrations that he had given to Imam Abu Hanifa himself. Right? And then he exclaimed, O group of jurists, O jurists, you are the physicians, we are merely the pharmacists. Right? How many of you being a doctor here? How many are you doing? It's generally all everybody, right? right? So, you are the physicians, we're just the pharmacists. Basically, the people who are going to tell you how to use the medicine, Right, how to use the narration are different from the pharmacist, which is probably you know rejects from medicine going to pharmacy, right? Isn't that what it is generally? That's what I'm hearing anyway. Um, sorry, 
Some people may have an affinity with and a love for pharmacy, so they go in directly. So let me not say that. Right? God bless you in whatever you do. God bless you in whatever you do. Um, so pharmacies, uh, I mean, we need pharmacists, right? So pharmacists, basically, they, they, they store the medicine. Their job is to store the medicine, make sure it's in supply, and then dispense it according to the prescription of the doctor. So that's a, that, that's a decent allergy, uh, a decent analogy. Another thing is that I believe that Imam Abu Hanifa's depth of understanding, the depth of extrapolation was probably missed by people. And they felt that he was actually opposing the narration because they couldn't understand his extrapolation. All right? And I've got a few things to back this up. Number one, when anybody actually questioned him about it, he was able to convince them, right? generally speaking. Of course, there's always going to be people who never come to you and they criticize you. right? Uh, he's been praised by the greatest people anyway. The other thing is that um, Imam Muhammad, as I mentioned, he went to one of the greatest hadith masters of his time, which is Imam Malik. Right? But he did not take his opinions. He remained a Hanafi even though he studied with him, which shows that the depth of understanding was, was fully comprehended by him. Then you've got this other story that's very interesting, that um, uh, one of the other prominent students of Imam Abu Hanifa was Zufar ibn Hudayl. He was from Basra originally. Uh, before that, there was another student, Uthman al-Batti, I think. He left, uh, he, he finished his classes with Imam Abu Hanifa, he was going back to Basra. So Imam Abu Hanifa gave him an advice. He said, when you go to Basra, nobody knows us there. Right? So make sure that you don't start your own classes. You need to establish yourself first. Don't start your own classes. People are going to knock you out. Right? Because they're very protective. But he went there. He was all geared up. He was all fired up. And he started his own class. And in just a few days, they, he started saying, Abu Hanifa this, Abu Hanifa that. And he was thrown out. Now, there was another student of Imam Abu Hanifa also from Basra. Because remember, Imam Abu Hanifa was in Kufa at that time. When he finished, and he was going to, back to Basra, when he went, he actually joined in other classes first, silently. And when the discussion would start, he would provide the rulings that he had learned from Abu Hanifa without mentioning his name. Right? Without mentioning his name. They didn't have anything against him, Abu Hanifa. They just didn't know him. And they were very protective over their own. So why should you go in? Why should you take from anywhere else? So slowly, slowly, what he started doing, you know, there's another opinion in here which says X, Y, and Z. Slowly, slowly, people started taking, paying attention to his at opinions because they were very intuitive. They made a lot of sense. Even he said, where are you getting all this stuff from? Because, you know, one day it might be his own opinion, second day, but he seems to have a whole stream of really good opinions. Where are you getting this from? Oh, I studied with Imam Abu Hanifa in Kufa. That's how uh, the, the Madhab Abu Hanifa eventually started in, Kufa, uh, in Basra. Right? And that tells you how to work in a new community as well. Right? So that tells you the profoundness of it once people get to access to it. Another story is that um, Imam, Hanif had another, uh, Imam Muhammad had a, a famous student called Muhammad ibn Sama'a. Muhammad ibn Sama'a had a friend called Isa ibn Aban. Isa ibn Aban was a muhaddith. He used to criticize Imam Muhammad al-Shaybani and the Hanafis, right? if you could call them Hanafis at the time, because it was not fully developed, right? It only became like known as Hanafis afterwards. Because remember, this is all development, uh, developmental period at the time. He said, um, uh, he used to pray with us in the same mosque, but then he would leave. He wouldn't sit in the dars and he would complain that, oh, you guys oppose hadith. One day, I insisted on him to sit down and sit in the gathering of Imam Muhammad al-Shaybani. 
So he said uh, he, that day he managed to sit and um, after the majlis finished, I took him close to Imam Muhammad and I said, this is your nephew Isa ibn Aban and you know, you can tell he's a, you know, he is, a, he is very intelligent and he has a good knowledge of hadith and I keep inviting him to you, uh, to, to, your, to your lesson, but uh, he keeps saying that we oppose hadith so he doesn't come, right? You can see that happening today. Yeah, I mean, although it's kind of calmed down, but the last 10, year, 15 years, this is exactly what used to be happening, right? Um, so Imam, uh, Imam, uh, Imam Muhammad says to him, My son, um, tell me which issues, right? In which issue do we oppose hadith? So he mentioned a number of issues, and Imam Muhammad started answering him. And uh, telling him that, okay, the reason we don't take this hadith is because that's abrogated. This one, there's another one that opposes it, etc., etc. Mentioned a number of dalail. And after we left, he turned around to me and he said that, you know what? There was a veil between me and the light. All this time there was just darkness for me. There was a veil between me and the light. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has now lifted it. And I never knew that there could be somebody who has this kind of knowledge, right? That's teaching people. After that, he went and he became a student of Muhammad ibn al-Hassan al-Shaybani. And then, mashallah, he became a great jurist. And then he actually wrote one of the first uh, Usul al-Hadith works for the Hanafi school later on. So basically, this just tells you that sometimes we may question people, criticize people without really knowing what they're all about. Because it's a very superficial knowledge that we have about them. So it behoves us to check people out, right? Uh, before, before, we, before we make certain judgments and uh, I just want to tell you his typical day right before we finish uh, you know what's very interesting his mother had more respect for these other preachers it's her son she didn't respect him as much so whenever she had a question she would insist that he go and ask this particular preacher and in just to be uh, th this just shows his uh, mashallah obedience to his mother just to be respectful of his mother he would literally go there and he would ask the scholar uh, that, that preacher and the preacher said why are you asking me for right he said look this is my mum so if the preacher didn't know the answer he would say okay tell me the answer so Imam when he would give him the answers then he would repeat it so he's like he heard it and then he would tell on some occasions she wouldn't trust him he said take me to him so she would be on the animal the mule he would ride with her to him and uh, the person would be embarrassed and uh, if he didn't know the answer he'd say to him what's the answer uh, what's the answer he would say oh is this that and then he would just say, yeah you're right right so they would make this play just to convince her uh, sometimes in his gathering there would be people that would uh, maybe you know you get that I mean just two Jumu'ahs ago um, I started Jumu'ah in, in, in one place right and somebody stood up about five minutes into it and he said you've come so late and uh, can you just quickly wrap it up? What happened here? Right? The others kind of started on and said, look, just leave it. Uh, eventually we found out that because it was, you know, uh, the winter times, right? He, he, he thought it was half twelve. And this was now one o'clock. Right? He thought it was already changed or something. So you get that. Now, I, I, I try to keep my cool, right? Because otherwise... It's very easy. You're in a position where people are going to listen to you anyway, and everybody's willing to grab them and beat them up. And you know, so he, on one occasion, he told everybody to stop. He says, "Look, I need to be. I'm in this place. I need to be able to listen to my criticism, then see whether it's right or wrong." One guy, he started criticizing him. He walked. 
even after the gathering, he kept saying things to him. Imam Hanifa said nothing to him. Eventually, he got to outside his house. He said, look, now I'm going to go into my house, which is my private property. If you've got anything else to say, just finish off here. I'm willing to listen to you. And then I'm going to go in. Right? He had a lot of forbearance. He was very calm, very quiet generally. And uh, he, his daily routine was as follows. After the Fajr prayer, he would go and, um, he would go and deliver a class in the masjid. And then after that, he would spend time uh, responding to fatwas, uh, questions people have asked him. They came from far and near. Then that was followed by another fiqh, uh, that, that was followed by a session in which they would compile the fiqh with his students. That was a very special lesson. And uh, whatever dishes, decisions were reached unanimously, they would then be recorded, right, which is found in Imam uh, Muhammad's books. After, saying his, after doing his dhuhr prayer, he would then go home, right? And then uh, uh, if it was summer, he'd have a little nap. Then the Asr prayer was followed by another session of teaching. After which, he would then go around the city meeting friends or visiting sick, condoling the bereaved, helping the poor. He would go out and do his external uh, acts. After the Maghrib prayer, there was a third teaching session. How long is his day? It's like it's never ending, right? We don't even have that time. But that's because Barakah. When you do things for Allah, you actually get more Barakah in time. I'll tell you this from experience, right? And... That would continue until Isha prayer. Now after Isha prayer, the Imam would start his private devotions, his private worship. Sometimes they would continue throughout the night. During winter, he often slept in the masjid until the Isha prayer from after Maghrib. After which he would spend uh, much of the night in performing the Tahajjud prayer, reciting chosen passages of the Quran, repeating devotional formulas. And um, sometimes he performed them in his shop. Now clearly he had a family. Because he had, his son was Hamad ibn Abi Hanifa. He clearly had a family. But this is probably not talking about the way he did it throughout his life. This is probably at probably later on when he's probably retired from a lot of things. Maybe that's when he did this. I just want to put it into perspective because you're probably going to know what about his family. Right? He's probably retired eventually at the end. Right? He's old. Maybe that's when he was doing this. Wallahu alam. But uh, there's a lot more to be said. There's major compilation biographies written about him. I've just tried to give you a a kind of an overview of the most important things that I thought about him. Hopefully, uh, we can be inspired about this and hopefully um, we can produce a few half Abu Hanifas or quarter of them or quarter Abu Hanifas, if not a full one, you know, from this gathering here, inshallah, today. Otherwise, uh, maybe it's in vain, right? But uh, we ask Allah for tawfiq.